Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. They are Deacon Dr. John Traveline and Sister Dr. Mary Diana Drager. They're assistant editors of the Lineker Quarterly, the Catholic Medical Association's 87-year-old Journal of Morality and Medicine, which is the oldest medical ethics journal in the United States. And they will do so regarding the November 2019 special issue on the topic of brain death. Yes, I'm very excited to go through this interview, especially with these guests, because they are so measured and so well-rounded, being both ethicists and physicians. Uh, And this interview was performed in late September 2019 in Nashville, Tennessee, at the uh, annual educational conference of the Catholic Medical Association, where over 900 people, the vast majority of physicians, uh, attended uh, and had a tremendously good time and even learned something medically. That's right. And so so we want to kind of set the stage for this interview because this is a, a hot topic. It's a controversial topic, even among well-intentioned uh, Catholic physicians. So we wanted to kind of go through a little bit of the history of brain death. And, you know, before 1960, death was defined simply as complete and irreversible uh, stopping of heartbeat and breathing. That seems pretty cut and dry. Very cut I and dry. I think a child would agree with that diagnosis. Yeah, you know, you know they, you know, they hold the mirror in front. In fact, I think they still do that when popes die. They hold a mirror in front to see if it gets fogged up or not. Right. Okay. So the concept of brain death was introduced in 1959 by two French physicians, and this came about because of the need for organs for transplantation and the the discovery and the usefulness, basically, of artificial respiration. Well, right. That's an excellent point, Andrew. Because before that, when somebody couldn't breathe, you can only do CPR-like strategies for so long, and then they pass away. But now, when we put someone on an artificial respirator or ventilator, we can keep the breathing going and the blood flowing for quite some time. Yes, that's a great point. And you're going to hear... um, you know, doctors Drager and Traveling talk about this 1968 uh, report that came out of Harvard Medical School where they defined brain death as an, a state of irreversible coma and where there is no spontaneous respiration during a three-minute period and where certain brainstem reflexes are completely absent. And so that is a pretty good, a pretty good idea that the person has died. All dead people would pass that test. There is kind of an area that we're going to discuss today where it's it's not that clear cut. But from from where they were looking at 1968, that's not a bad place to start. The only thing that I found really interesting was for a scientific position, something out of Harvard, very official, you'd think that it'd be full of footnotes and lots of evidence um, it wasn't, was how, it? How many footnotes, how many references were there? It, there was just one, to my knowledge. And, and from which scientific journal did it come, Andrew? This, this came, believe it or not, from a Catholic pope, Pope Pius XII. Yes, a comment, <laughs> a comment about So that, that was the footnotes that they were hinging this, this basically position statement on. It, they were just making it up out of thin air almost. But that report in 1968 unambiguously proposed that brain death should count as death. And it's, you know, even at the time, there was a lot of pushback against it where they said that uh, brain death does not disrupt the integration, the unity of the body, that heart and lungs were a measure of that, but that the brain alone was not. And that debate continues on today because we're trying to bridge a philosophical reality, that is a separation of the soul from the body, with a medical reality which cannot measure the presence of the soul. Right. We don't have a good test for soul is present, yes or no. You know, and I love this. I I watch Star Trek reruns with my 13-year-old twins, and in there, their philosophy and theology of death is really poor. In fact, my twins look at me and they hold their noses because they will say, Death is the time when you only exist in the memory of others. And my twins are like, no, that's not. Death (laughs) is when the soul and the body separate. 
Yes, thank you, twins. I'm so happy that you understand that. And much of our society, sadly, does not. Right. And I think that's, you know, one of the things they definitely don't teach in public school. And even a lot of a lot of folks are never exposed to the idea of philosophy and the idea that you can really know things rationally apart from empiricism and things that you can feel, touch and measure. And, and what is empiricism? Kind of things you can feel, touch and measure. OK, that's all, that's <laughs> and, all it means. And, yes. and kind of the idea in, in our tech and science driven culture that what is knowable has to be provable in some way and measurable. And philosophy doesn't operate in those terms. It operates by rules of reason, and, you know, it really appeals to the idea of a natural law that's imprinted on all of our hearts. Right. So scientific method is good for measuring scientific things, but not all things are scientific. And you can appreciate how doctors or scientific-ish people in 1968 neglected potentially some of the philosophical conundrums that this brings on. Yes, but it was primarily uh, transplantation programs with their need for the freshest organs possible that led to reevaluation of the concept of brain death, such that some considered death of the brain stem as death of the brain as death of the body. So you're trying to focus the essential aspect of the body in this little part at the bottom of the brain above the spinal cord called the brain stem. It, it does. It makes it tough because if the soul leaves the body, you know, at, at what point can you obtain a living heart or living lungs from a dead body? Right. Which is kind of the, the question, and it's hard to explain to a child. It's hard to explain to me. And so <laughs> hopefully we can delve into that a bit. Yes, and our guests will do that, as you will hear. But you will notice that even among neurologists, among doctors in different countries, there is not a unanimous opinion. There is not consensus that absence of brainstem reflexes means death, let alone uh, brain death. In fact, uh, in Europe, they have a different uh, concept of brain death than we have in the United States. And even institution to institution sometimes can have different rules about determining brain death. Yes. And so how many patients might slip through the cracks? And that, that is what inevitably brings up stories that people have seen or heard in the news where someone was declared dead and came back to life. Well, that is done differently in different places, which it seems like that would be standardized, but that is one of the problems that we're facing. And, and now in the country of India, it has become necessary uh, by government law uh, that uh, Anybody who dies from brain death, the government must be notified right away to get more transplants available. But in this article out of India, the, this neurosurgeon says that uh, because of laws, an individual could be considered legally dead in one country but alive in another country. Uh, imagine that. Yeah, that, that is a challenge. And here in America, in general, we work with the idea of whole brain death. That was determined in 1981 when the uh, Council on Bioethics wrote a paper regarding that. That's applied differently in different areas, but in some countries, as Tom was alluding to, part of the brain can still be totally functioning as long as the brain stem is dead. Right. We don't have those rules here in general. And a, a piece of data that I looked for and found after the interview was what percent of people declared dead in the United States are declared dead by brain death criteria? And I found it, and it's uh, 1% to 2% of all deaths are, are brain deaths. That's a lot. I think so. I, I, I was mean, guessing it would have been less. Yeah, that's, that's a big number. So even though practice parameters were published in 1995 in the United States, updated in 2010, there's still disagreement even within our own country. Well, you'll get to listen to uh, Dr. Drager. And traveling, I will pose the medical trivia question of the day. Well, since the criteria for brain death were developed because of the need to preserve organs for organ transplantation, and yet so that we had moral certitude about the death of the donor, this episode's question will deal with organ transplantation. So it's a two-part question. Number one, how many organ transplants do you think were performed in the United States last year in 2018? And the second question, which I find to be even more fascinating, what percentage of American adults are signed up to be organ donors? We'll be back after the break with this fascinating discussion with Drs. Traveline and Drager here on Dr. Doctor. 
Welcome to another special interview of Dr. Dr. Dunn in Nashville at the 2019 Annual Education Conference of the Catholic Medical Association. We here are going to be tiptoeing and trying to give some good information on a very challenging topic, the topic of death. Death is a challenge for a number of reasons, and we're going to talk about a concept called brain death. This is going to be the topic of the upcoming issue of the Lineker Quarterly, the official uh, medical moral journal of the Catholic Medical Association. In fact, the oldest medical moral journal in the United States. It's been published since 1932. We have with us today two of the uh, editors of this issue. First, I'd like to introduce Deacon Dr. John Traveline, not new to Dr. Doctor. He's spoken to us twice before. Deacon John, would you please tell us why you are one of the right people to talk about this? Tom, thank you. It's nice again to be with you and uh, to speak about yet another important topic. Uh, my involvement um, with this issue um, comes because of my uh, role as the executive editor for the Lineker Quarterly. And also, you deal with a lot of people at the end of life in critical care, don't do I, not. I do. I, I practice intensive care medicine, critical care, and uh, pulmonary medicine at a, a large uh, transplant center in Philadelphia. And so uh, uh, the, these issues surrounding death, um, these issues surrounding brain death are, uh, are close to uh, me in, in the clinical realm. And our other guest today is Sister Dr. Mary Diana Drager, um, OP uh, of the Nashville Dominicans. Sister Mary Diana, why are you here with us today as one of the experts to help unpack this a little bit? Well, I wouldn't say, Tom, exactly I'm an expert. However, I am the chair of the Lineker Quarterly Committee at the moment, and so I work very closely with Barbara Golder, our editor-in-chief, in order to develop the, the content, strategic goals, and things like that related to the Lineker Quarterly. What would you, before we get into the subject, like listeners to know about the Lineker Quarterly. So the Lineker Quarterly is the official journal of the Catholic Medical Association. We publish four times a year, and in the November issue of each year, we cover a specific individual topic of, of interest to our readership. So for example, last year, which was the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, our issue was related to Humanae Vitae. In past years, we've had issues related to the elderly or issues related to women's health issues or um, issues related to social teaching of the church and how that interfaces with medicine. So each year we run one special issue in the November issue and focus on a particular topic. So why did you choose brain death for 2019? This is um, this topic of brain death has been something um, in in our organization, the, the Catholic Medical Association, for a number of years, with many people um, discussing this and uh, wanting to move in the direction of of of, of bringing some clarity, speaking uh, to the extent that we could authoritatively as physicians speak to the medical science uh, of this uh, this entity this this diagnosis of brain death. Uh, so it's something that's been swirling for a few years. And uh, as we were thinking uh, about a special issue topic, um, this emerged to the top, rose to the top. You know, Deacon, I'm, I'm thinking that many of our listeners would probably view death as a binary issue, black or white. You're either alive or dead. Um, and that's certainly how I had always viewed it until you get into caring for these patients that you know, as medicine's advanced, there is an area, a, a kind of twilight zone, where we are learning that it's not black and white. Um, can you describe to us what is death? Well, I, th I think um, before I, I get to that, I, th I think it, it should be stated, not to, lest there be any confusion about it, but one is either dead or alive. So in a sense, it is binary. Um, I think what comes out surrounding this issue is an understanding of what is death in terms of how do we, we want to define or how it is defined or has been defined. Or So the question is, is we don't know exactly where that line is, but there's most certainly a line. 
Yes, yes, I would say absolutely. There's a line. A person is either dead or alive. Um, as we get into the clinical realm and uh, as it falls in really not, a, not just our society, but I think societies in general across the world, it falls to physicians and those primarily um, to, quote, declare someone or to pronounce someone dead. If that's if that's the case, and we've been guided by um, uh, through 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 the years, at least in modern medicine, the um, the uh, time honored uh, definition of of death clinically that a physician could use was when there was irreversible cessation of the heart and breathing function. So a person who had no pulse and had no spontaneous respirations be declared or pronounced dead. So I think an important distinction here too is that there's, there are two different concepts. One is the person is dead or alive, but then there's a separate concept and the Vatican or the Pope has talked about this at times, and that is that there are signs that in fact this has happened. So death and the signs of death are not exactly the same thing exactly and so that's where the distinction has to be made so classically physicians have identified death as cessation of function of the heart and the lungs and so we look for signs that 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 in fact has happened but it's not that the heart stopping or the the lungs not working that is not death death is actually a metaphysical concept, right? It's that the soul is no longer animating the body. So we consider the person to be this perfect unity of body and soul. The soul is the animating principle. The soul is the form of the body, we say. So death is when the soul is no longer animating the body. And the question is for physicians to identify the signs that that in fact has taken place. That really helps to clarify things, sister. Around these difficult questions, what is your hope for this issue of the Lenniker Quarterly? So the hope is that we can perhaps continue some really good conversation because I think a lot of people have many questions about this. There are some people, some very, very strong, good Catholics who have absolute understanding of of what brain death is and they believe that it is clearly a sign of death having taken place and there are others who have questions about this and don't think that we've really crossed that divide between the metaphysical understanding of what death is and the medical science statement of what are the signs that in fact this medical uh, this metaphysical concept has taken place And so we know that within the Catholic Medical Association, and even for that matter, outside the Catholic Medical Association, people have questions about brain death that they feel haven't really been answered yet. And so we we looked at this issue as something that's perhaps bringing some of these questions, more of these questions to light. In fact, I think we actually ran across more questions (laughs) as we went along. And we would we think that this kind of conversation is actually very important um, to continue. So our hope is is continuing the conversation in a way that's that's respectful of both the philosophical and theological side of things as well as the medical and scientific side of things. Well, that's a good place for a break. We'll be right back with more here on Dr. Doctor. Here we are back with both Drs. Deacon John Traveline and Sister Dr. Mary Diana Drager. I wonder as we kind of delve into this, if, if Deacon, you know, you practice in the ICU, could you give us a clinical story that illustrates why brain death or better yet, why is this relevant? Why to, is it relevant? Yeah. yeah, to our listeners, why should they care about this? With in modern medicine, with the ability and the continued ability to um, address a variety of, of serious critical illnesses in in patients, we have the ability through technology to to maintain uh, life of a person. Yet there are times when um, it appears that um, 
a patient is not uh, survivable, will not survive despite all the applied technology to that person. Um, and then these are the these many times are the situations um, uh, where um, questions are asked: Could this person uh, perhaps become a, a, a organ, be, be an organ donor? And then the whole matter of declaring uh, the, the person, pronouncing the person dead based on neurologic criteria, so-called brain death criteria, comes up. So, so it's a it's a common um, clinical. Um, entity uh, um, and so and many people many families are faced with this unfortunately in these in these often tragic uh, circumstances so Deacon you, you had mentioned organ donation is is that a, a main reason why we are worried about brain death or do you think it would be a, a clinical issue in its own right I, I've I've come to to, to really think that the uh, development of this neurologic criteria for death really um, uh, arose because of advances in transplantation of vital organs. So it was seen, um, there was a need, so it seemed, for uh, the ability to, as we say, it sounds like a crude term, but to harvest vital organs um, from from persons once they were and once they were pronounced dead, and I really think this is part. This is a big part of why the uh, the neurologic criteria, brain death criteria, emerged. And there's something called the Harvard criteria that kind of kicked this off. Yeah, there again with with technology, sort of in the mid uh, 20th century, the ability to keep people alive on respirators, for example, and and cardiac life support systems. Um, you know, physicians, philosophers, moral uh, uh, ethicists began to to wonder about the um, the end of of that and what was what was really being done here. Um, coincident with those technologies to keep people um, going on life support systems coincident with that time were developments in vital organ transplantations, um, heart transplantations uh, uh, in, in and around that time, for example. And um, I think the, the intersection of, of those um, things that were happening in modern medicine um, led to um, this uh, led to this uh, assembled panel of, of experts uh, that met at, at Harvard and came up with specific criteria for which um, spe specific criteria which could be applied to a person in this state is an extreme state near uh, death being sustained uh, with life, life. And this was in 1968. Therapy. In 1968, the, uh, the Harvard criteria were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And have those criteria changed over the years? Um, for the most part, they uh, there there have been modifications of that, and there's a lot of um, uh, variation in the uh, those criteria from institution to institution, uh, even even country to country. Or, or so even so in secular there medicine, been. there is not consensus on the exact criteria. Exactly. What I'm hearing, uh, there's general consensus, sister. If you may want to comment to that, there is general consensus, but there, there are, uh, there is variation. It seems that that it's pretty much a statewide determination that that individual states may have particular protocols that they are following, and even who can actually identify the patient as as deceased by neurologic criteria. So, for example, in one state, that it can actually be a physician assistant who actually applies the criteria, and that's wow. all that's needed. Whereas in in other states, it's it has to be two independent uh, neurologists, so physicians actually trained for that, and and many criteria associated um, with how that is actually done. Well, let's done. give our listeners kind of a, a feel for the landscape. Out of 100 people who die in a day, how many would be declared dead by brain death criteria? Is it a really tiny minority? Is it less than one out of 100? Um, I would it's it's clearly a, a minority, and I would say, I would, I would speculate a rather small minority. Less than one percent, more than um, maybe around there. Okay, yeah, fair enough. So, can you at least couch in terms for a lay audience what some of the general criteria involve? Uh, 
what does it mean for a brain to not function or to be dead by brain death criteria? They do some testing, right? Well, in, in, yeah, in general, it's, um, I mean, the criteria involve, for example, first of all, um, being clear that there's not some other conditions, for, commonly, for example, uh, drug overdose that may mimic a state of no brain functioning. So making sure, for example, that that's not the case, um, making sure that the person is not profoundly hypothermic, another clinical... Low body uh, temperature. Uh, yep. is, uh, correct. Um, so putting into place these sort of um, safeguards, so to say, uh, and then um, both physiologic and uh, anatomic uh, imaging of the brain, a, a CAT scan, a blood flow study, perhaps a MRI do scan they do of the, the brain EEGs to, to check for uh, brain waves? EEG uh, is some is is many times done. It it become it's it's actually one of the lesser um, reliable tests. It, it's just not as clean, so to speak, clinically uh -huh. as some uh, as for example a blood flow, a cerebral blood flow scan, uh, or a cerebral angiogram looking for blood flow specifically in uh, uh, blood flow to the brain. So there are these are part of the criteria. Um, so there's several establishing very, that very Physi technical things. There are very technical physical examination. Uh, we must not forget to ensure that there's no brain stem, um, or, or to assess whether brain stem uh, function exists. Can you explain Typically, to our listeners why brain stem function is important as part of this question? Well, brain stem. We 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 talk about brain stem in, in the in the conversations and discussions about brain death. Sometimes we'll hear the distinction between whole brain, whole brain criteria, whole brain death criteria versus uh, limited or less than uh, that. And with whole brain criteria, what's being referred to there is that the brain stem, um, uh, a more primitive part of the brain, uh, for example, uh, is included in that analysis or that determination of brain so, death. So, so this part of the brain really controls like heart rate, breathing, but not rational thinking. Correct, correct. These are more uh, basic re reflexes uh, of the brain. Um, Eyes blinking, for example. We, we talk about like gag reflex. Uh, we talk about um, uh, 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 you know other so-called cranial nerves that are involved sure. that need to be tested for. So these are there's a lot of technical things that go into determining this. So it's definitely not something that's applied lightly, but it does vary in place to place. So they they might be applied differently in different countries. It, it certainly isn't applied lightly, and as we were talking about the, the change in, in uh, or the uniformity in the brain death criteria, um, I know hospital the, the hospitals I've been to actually have their own, quote, brain death policy. So even at that local level, there are very sp specific uh, criteria that, again, are, are largely um, uniform, but uh, may have nuanced um, uh, components for the assessment of brain death. That being said, one of the things that did come up as we were developing this this issue for the Lineker Quarterly is that on a couple of occasions we had physicians note that when in in particular institutions they sometimes had to sort of go back and and put things into place to be sure that the brain death criteria were being followed very closely. So so perhaps there have been occasions when maybe the criteria have not been followed quite so closely, but the medical community has been, has sort of expressed their own concerns about that and has tried to put things into place to make sure that, that protocols are followed very carefully. And we're actually looking forward in the Lenica Quarterly to having a little article about that um, written by one of our Catholic Medical Association physicians who can sort of explore that for us a little better and, and help us to see how that kind of process is, is um, managed. So one of the big questions debated by authors is, you know, official church teaching on brain death. Is there official church teaching? So that depends who you ask. And, and once again, you can get some very good Catholic physicians and even theologians who will say that, that the question has been definitively answered. 
and others who will say that it has not been definitively answered. So it's a very challenging, that's, that in itself is a challenging point. In fact, for this issue of the Lenacre Quarterly, we were very much hoping that somebody would uh, submit an article that really would take apart that whole concept of what's a magisterial teaching, or uh, and more specifically, what's an infallible magisterial teaching. So, unfortunately, we didn't have anybody take us up on that. We did ask specific people to to write that article for us that would help to explore that. As I said, people had had varying thoughts on it. Um, it is true that Pope John Paul II had made some statements related to the issue of brain death. Um, it is notable that his statements never appeared in something like an encyclical. Um, it actually is not covered in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So there are some very key documents, key teaching documents of the Church, which do not contain any kind of information on this issue. What most people refer to is a, an address that Pope John Paul II made to a meeting of transplant surgeons. Uh. And so different people will put different levels of importance on that statement. And, and I would say that and some people point to the fact that, the, church, that the, the Holy Father used some very careful language, it seems. So, in fact, he used the expression, it seems that. Um, in the process, and he of was a professional decade. philosopher. Yes, and and he w- what he was talking about specifically was that it seems like the signs of death that physicians are presenting to us, that science is pre- presenting to us, do not seem to conflict with an understanding of a Christian anthropology. The Christian anthropology is what we've been talking about here, like in terms of like the metaphysics, like what what exactly is life, what exactly is death. And what and, is a person? Right. And so so the Holy Father, some people will say that that statement was a magisterial approval of the brain death criteria. And some people will say, well, it's, a, it's an approval that's a bit conditional on the science and, and what is understood so far. And that seems to be the key statement that people will argue as it either being magisterial and then they will equate it with sort of an infallible teaching and then other people saying that's not really a statement that would qualify as magisterial per se. It it would probably be fair to say that there's a paucity of statements in in regard to brain death. And not very many of them either. I think that's (laughs) true. And the other statements that are made or have been made are are actually statements out of uh, a pontifical academy. And now pontifical academies are consultative bodies to the Holy See, and they are not, again, they are not official magisterial um, entities in a sense. Although some people will, it's it's a study group is a good way to think about it, yes. Although again, some people will put a higher level of of um, importance to that as well, and and there are some very good people who put a higher level of importance on that. So it, it becomes difficult to really tease it all out, and that's why, again, this issue of the Lineker Quarterly we thought was so important is is perhaps to bring some of these questions to light, and and we are looking forward, we hope, too, to this being an ongoing discussion in the Lineker Quarterly and looking for some people to perhaps write some of those papers that we oh, didn't good. get yet. Well, and sister, <laughs> b- hint, bef- hint. before we move on, what year was it, or in about what year did JP2 make those statements? Was that some time ago? It was around the year 2000, 2001, that he, yeah. that the address to the transplant um, uh, surgeons I'm just wondering in done, regard right. to even our scientific information we have now if if uh when he made those so we have almost two decades of advances right and he clearly put the onus on on physicians on scientists to help with this and so that's one of the points that people have made is that if we have new scientific evidence that perhaps provides us with some different information well the church is certainly going to be open to that and and so that's why we think we see that this conversation really does need to continue what are the top arguments supporting brain death criteria being medically and ethically appropriate? It, to, to establish the clinical signs of death by using brain death criteria, then open the door for vital organs from, a, from that person to be used 
to the benefit of others. And a vital and organ is basically something, if removed, the patient will die. Would die, right. Because so if heart, you remove a kidney, patient's correct. not going to die. Correct. We talk, if you remove part yeah. of a pancreas, it's... Co correct. Yeah. We talk of, of living donors, right. or bone living marrow. donors, bone living marrow, donors. kidney, yeah, classic examples. But to remove someone's heart, obviously, right. lungs, both lungs, liver. So, um, so the argument for, and I think is a very, uh, very valid and a very good one, is that the benefit to be gained through ongoing advances in trans organ transplantation are huge. Are there other arguments, or is that the primary one? So I think one of the primary arguments is that the brain is seen as the integrating organ of the of the person of the, of the body and without the integrating organ then clearly the body cannot go on living so that's kind of a, a key piece i believe Very to the good. argument and um and so so if the brain in fact is quote unquote dead if the brain is not able to function as a whole then therefore that's that's being seen in these new criteria um, or these criteria that are 50 years old now of, of <laughs> the reason for being able to say that the that the human being is is dead now you have to remember our, our language here you, you know we keep crossing back and forth here between scientific language and philosophical language yes, and we're right. kind of pretending like it's all the same and it isn't the word person mm -hmm. is not a scientific word. Correct. It's a philosophical or theological word that really is developed out of the whole concept of the Trinity. It's the way we were able to understand the threeness in the oneness yes. of the Trinity. The three what to, and the three what else. Right. Yes. The, 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 one, the one, word yeah. person. And so from the point of view of humanity, the human person uh, again, in, in a sort of Catholic or Christian theological and philosophical terms, is the union of the, the single organism that has a unified body and soul. Now, that's not a concept in science, right? So, no. so person isn't really. In fact, there are multiple theories going around these days of what personhood is. Um, personhood qualifies in different circles on many different things. It's even yes. if even if you're wanted or not is uh, one of the criteria right. that some people will say that qualifies you as a person or the not. The whole abortion debate. Right. So we're talking here about whether a person is alive or not, and yet person is not the scientific term, right? So the scientific term at best we could say maybe human being. And so from the scientific point of view, an integrated human being to say that the integrated human being is alive requires the integrating organ, which is seen as the brain. That's very helpful. So we've just given, did you have another supporting? I, well, I, just to answer the rest of that question, on the downside, the arguments well, that's against. what I was just going to ask. Okay, yes. uh, uh, I think on the, on the, 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 the negative, those in opposed to uh, a brain death criteria is the danger, I think this is probably the greatest argument against it, the danger of seeing the body, seeing the person, uh, the comments by sister notwithstanding, that as um, in, a, in, a, in a utilitarianistic sort of way, as, a, as, an, as, object. Something, as an object to be used, right. yeah, even used for good, and that's... that's uh, obviously very problematic so that, that 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 would be the major argument i would say would another argument against it be that in some places where the brain death criteria have been applied a, a person has actually regained consciousness well there there are uh, cases of this but my my um i would caution that uh, it in these cases where people were quote declared brain dead um, but then uh, regained consciousness or some level, higher level of functioning uh, I would say these were misapplied um, criteria they were uh, yeah, improperly applied faulty applications and again that that kind of points to one of the difficulties that we run into is that when people identify that you know person X was identified as brain dead and then they came back later on is that some people will say well clearly the fact that they came back later on that they are in fact alive is actually evidence that the brain death criteria were not applied correctly sure. whereas other people will say well 
evidence has it that they really did apply it correctly if we're to go back and read the chart and and believe what was written in the chart and then so but so maybe it really was applied correctly but it's evidence that the criteria are not right this is a this is this is a big question we don't we don't really know which way it really falls out in in this sense well and sister i mean i know we keep going back between philosophy and science i've got kind of a more philosophical question how can you remove a living heart or living lungs from a dead person Right. So I think the distinction that's being made, at least on the scientific point of view, is that an organ is not the same as an organism. And I think there are many Catholic philosophers and theologians who also make that distinction, that an organ is not the same as an organism. So the organism is the whole and it's the integrated whole, whereas an, an organ individually may be able to survive the, the death of the person as, as a whole. I've heard of the concept of the, what you were saying, the organism as a whole rationale for brain death or the brain as a whole. What does this contribute to the debate about brain death criteria? Well, I, th I think it's important to, at least with respect to um, definitions and criteria for brain death, to um, consider the whole brain, the cortex, uh, as well as the the, the brainstem, as I was saying earlier. I think that's an important uh, uh, distinction the brain death to criteria maintain. do that? Do they the look whole, at whole, whole brain? brain death criteria. Okay. And, I was and, and some, some brain death criteria would not be whole brain, right? Correct. Ah, very so good. So some, some do, some don't. Yeah. So that's it is incredible. an important concept. Yes. So, uh, you know, a key emotional type of question I have for you is how were your beliefs, thoughts, feelings challenged changed by all the different submissions and discussions you've had over this issue uh, for me for me personally professionally um uh, this this issue and, and reading the papers as they they were um, coming in and uh continuing to think about these issues again it, as i practice in a, in a transplant center and see patients critically ill patients it just stirred up a lot of questions uh in my mind um, it, it took me deeper. I thought this, for me at least professionally, for m many years of my career, was a was a established sort of uh, issue, and uh, I really didn't pay it much attention. It was, but um, but but through this through this issue, it, it just it, it it allowed me to dive deeper into some of the uh, uh, some of the uh, concerns as it related to. Uh, to the whole use of the brain death criteria. Yes, I would say too that it developed lots of questions in my mind as well. Not not necessarily questions that would even argue against particular parts of how brain death criteria are, are you know, determined or written. Some of it just had to do with with bringing to light and I think the importance of bringing to light how some of this has come about, some of the history behind it. So for example, we were able to pull up the first paper from the Journal of American, American Medical Association on the, the consensus statement from Harvard. And one of the things that surprised us all was that we are in the, in the year 2019, we're used to the idea that a consensus paper in a scientific journal, mm -hmm. a major scientific journal, would have at the end of it probably pages Yes. of citations, of references to previously written scientific papers. And this original paper has no references at all to any scientific papers. It does have one footnote at the end of it, and the only footnote is actually a footnote to Pope Pius Twelfth. Okay, now this is the Harvard criteria written in the Journal of American <laughs> Medical Association, and the one footnote it has is to Pope Pius Twelfth and his discussion about ordinary and extraordinary care. So that was that was pretty interesting to us, and it, it left us with lots of questions as to well, how did this consensus statement develop? Because it's it's hard to kind of trace it down historically. Um, you know, in fact, there have been there are secular bioethicists, apparently non-Christian and not Catholic, who have actually made this point that that the consensus statement that was derived in 1968 was really a bit arbitrary. 
and have even asked questions of, uh, or, or perhaps no, they're not quite so concerned as to whether the criteria are valid or not. Um, but, they, but they note sort of offhandedly that maybe it wasn't as scientific as we think it was. I mean, it, it's, hard, it's hard to really to tease that apart. And so it does leave you with those questions. Um, and, the, and there were other questions that came up uh, relative to other papers. So, for example, one, of, um, one person brought to light the fact that, um, you know, how brain death criteria are done in Great Britain and pulled up some, uh, an official document that, that explains some of that. And as we tease that apart, we realize that really brain death criteria in England, it's, a, it's brain stem death is what they're talking about. So that would be the whole brain. No, not the whole brain. Oh, They're making the, the assumption brain. that okay. perhaps uh, that the, because the brain stem is also involved in part of the system that generates consciousness in the upper part of the brain, that as long as you identify the brain stem as dead, then that's, that's really sufficient. So you can assume everything above it is dead. That's, what, that's basically what they're saying. But it brought the question to light of if the... Uh, let's say if the Pontifical Academy in, in Rome is talking about total brain failure, well, do they mean what we mean in the United States for total brain failure, or do they mean what's being stated in Great Britain? And, and I have no idea what any other country says about any of this. We didn't, we didn't look at any other countries either. So I think there are lots of questions out there that, um, that, are, that, that really provoked our interest. I think something we need to make crystal clear for our listeners is that the Catholic Medical Association does not have an official position on brain death. Yes, that's a very important statement. And we do know that going back at least 10, maybe 20 or, or more years, some of the members of the Catholic Medical Association have wanted us to actually make a specific position statement or position paper from our organization on this issue of brain death. And the CMA has chosen specifically not to do that. And it is very important to see this issue, this November issue of the Lenniker Quarterly, as not any, not any sense making an official statement from the Catholic Medical Association. It's, we invited papers to be written on the topic so that the discussion could continue. Uh, and we attempted to make our selection of papers uh, very careful and and very clear in terms of papers that are uh, scholarly um, as well as some papers that just present some experiences of Catholic physicians that have left questions in their minds but this is by no means a, a kind of an official statement of the Catholic Medical Association. So as a final question what takeaways would you like to leave with listeners? What do you think is important to the lay listener on this topic? Well, stay tuned. This is a very important uh, issue, not only for physicians, those of us in healthcare, but it does, uh, it reaches into the society, it reaches into families afflicted uh, and affected by, uh, by, by tragedies and, and circumstances that leave a loved one in situations of, uh, of uh, life support, life-sustaining therapy. So stay tuned. It's an unsettled issue, I would say, for sure, as we've heard. And... Um, um, I guess that's it. that's it. Deacon John, Sister Mary Diana, thank you very much for being with us and talking about this incredibly important topic. We'll be back with the answer to the trivia question on this episode of Dr. Doctor after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the trivia question. Yes, so the main purpose is we're going to demonstrate the answer for declaring brain death is to get fresh organs for transplantation. So part one of our two-part question was, how many organ transplants were performed in the U.S. in 2018? The answer? If you were plus or minus 5,000, I'd think you're excellent. The answer was 36,528. But what's more fascinating is that during the break, Dr. Mullally strove to dive deeper into this. And what did he find? I'm just a number cruncher, Tom. That's all I do, <laughs> crunching the numbers. Cr and what numbers did you crunch? If, if you look at all the deaths in America in 2017 and you do 2%, you get about 43,600 deaths. And we know between 1% and 2% are brain deaths. So we're looking at you know 36,000 organ transplantations. That's pretty much, I, I would say, all brain deaths. Yep. So there's not a lot of brain deaths 
who are not leading to a transplantation. Right. So the numbers would suggest that the vast majority, if not all of the brain deaths are. Now, maybe this was also used to take somebody off of a ventilator. That right. could be another purpose. But many of those patients, they were after their organs. Yeah. And this is something that really happens. So the second question is, what percentage of Americans are signed up to be organ donors? So, Andrew, looking at that answer, is it higher or lower than you expected? It is lower than I expected, but that doesn't say much. <laughs> well, the answer is 58%. 58%. Was it higher or lower than you thought? I didn't know what to expect, honestly, because I've got so many different of my own opinions about it that I guess I, I was thinking like you would probably be higher. I, I know when you go to register for a driver's license, at least when I did, I, and I've heard stories from others, it, they kind of, I don't want to say coerce, but they really encourage you to do it. Like, why wouldn't you? Right. And in countries where you have to opt out instead of opt in, like in the United States, the rate's higher. Yeah, I can imagine that. That would be... Because and, I think I think the rate would be higher if it was an opt out. It, that is, you're assumed to be an organ transplant donor unless you decide not to. And then... Uh, finally, 20% of people die daily waiting for a transplant. So we do have a big a big burden, a big need for transplants, too. So you can appreciate, man, if, if this is something that we can continue doing, people need them. Thank you again for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing recent national health care legislation with U.S. Senator Todd Young of Indiana, a member of the Senate Finance Committee and Health Subcommittee that oversees Medicare. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.